next week to one of my favorite chapters, although we're going to work through it slowly. Um, John chapter 11, and uh, this morning I'm going to cover verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In Jesus' parable of the sower, one of the main lessons there, or it's very obvious there, that how a person handles trials is a test of whether his faith is genuine faith. You remember the story, the seed was sown, some of it, on shallow ground, and it sprang up right away, it looked good, but it had no root. And when the sun began to beat down on it, it withered quickly. And Jesus explained that the sun in that parable represented trials and persecution. The other kind of seed there, the seed sown on the thorny ground, it lasted a little longer than the seed on the shallow ground, but eventually the thorns choked it out and it bore no fruit. And Jesus explains the thorns are the worries, the cares of this world. It bore no fruit. I take it those two types of faith were not genuine. The only genuine faith was that that persevered and bore fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. So trials can sort out believers from those who profess to believe but aren't true believers. But even in the life of true believers, trials can uh, really be a source of doubting. I think one example in the Bible, John the Baptist, Jesus said, there's no one like John. I mean, of those born among women, John's the greatest. And yet, when he was in prison... He began to doubt. He began to doubt. And, you know, when, whenever you, you struggle, just strong emotions begin to flood in and your rational capacities kind of diminish and all of these feelings flood over you. And John in prison, Matthew eleven three, sent word to Jesus, Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Uh, This is John who bore witness of Jesus in the Gospel of John and said, he's the Son of God, but here he is in jail. And you know what he's saying. If you're the Messiah and I'm your messenger, then why am I in this stinking jail? And as we know, John eventually lost his head there. But trials can shake us. And if even a a great man like John can begin to doubt in a time of, of... difficult trial, then it tells us it's important that we think biblically about trials and especially before they hit. Remember in Proverbs, calamity mocks at the person who didn't gain wisdom before it hit. Now is the time. 
And then, of course, as we're in the midst of it, to go back to that and, and make sure our anchor is sure that we are processing these trials the way the Lord wants us to. Now, John chapter 11 gives us a story of what is arguably Jesus' most dramatic and spectacular miracle of his entire ministry. He goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. Four days after he died, his body was beginning to decompose. And Jesus calls him forth out of the tomb. He is raised and comes forth. An amazing miracle. As you could expect, critics doubt this miracle. The reason being, many liberal critics say, well, this miracle is not in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it is an important miracle. Surely if it really happened, they would have it. And so they kind of begin to doubt it. And Well, I grant it may be difficult to explain why is it not in the other Gospels. Uh, I don't know if the critics think about this, but it creates equally huge problems to say that somehow uh, John made it up. Come on. Um, One scholar, G.R. Beasley Murray, says, One should keep steadfastly in mind that he who wrote the Gospel of the Word Made Flesh viewed history as of first importance, he would never have related the story of Jesus, still less created one, uh, a story of Jesus, much less created one, that he did not have reason to believe took place. In other words, he's saying, this story reads like a true story. It reads like an eyewitness account. And uh, if John had fabricated it, Critics would have come out of the woodwork when he wrote it and said, that's crazy. Everybody knows that didn't really happen. And John would have, his entire gospel would have been laughed off the record. But John knew it was true. We do know the other gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report two other resurrections that Jesus performed that John doesn't include. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Uh, The widow of Nain's son was raised from the dead. Why didn't John have those? We don't know the answer to those kind of questions, but uh, I think we can trust that this is a genuine event witnessed by many eyewitnesses. John says many came to believe in Jesus through this uh, miracle. Now, the situation was Jesus had left Jerusalem. We saw this last week. And had gone uh, up where John was first baptizing, somewhere on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, probably north, um, out, out north, northeast of the Sea of Galilee, way out in there. And he was ministering. He was seeing many come to faith. Word comes to Jesus from a messenger from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus is sick. And John emphasizes more than once, as we'll see, that Lazarus, Uh, as well as his sisters Mary and Martha, were especially close to Jesus. He loved them in a special uh, relationship. And so we read in verse 5 how Jesus loved them, and you would expect verse 6 would say, so he dropped everything he was doing, and he went immediately to be with them to, to heal Lazarus. But instead, we read that because he loved him, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and by the time he gets to Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus then does this wonderful miracle, raising him from the dead four days after he's been in the tomb. 
Now, commentators differ on the uh, chronology of this event. Some say Jesus was about a day's journey outside of Jerusalem, and so after the messenger left, shortly after, Lazarus passed away. Uh, The first day would be the messenger traveling to Jesus. Then you have two days of Jesus staying there. On the fourth day, he returned and did the miracle. Um, That reconstruction seems a little bit at odds with the sister's complaint, Lord, if you had only been here, our brother wouldn't have died. In other words, you could have made it and you didn't. And so other uh, scholars think, and they're probably correct, Jesus was further away. Uh, It took some time. The messenger got there. Lazarus was still hanging on. Jesus might have had time to hurry and get back, but his delay resulted in Lazarus's death, and then he um, goes to him. But in either case, we have to recognize Jesus could have done here what he did back in chapter 4. That's when the, the son of the royal official was sick, and Jesus told the father, go, your son lives, and he healed him from a distance. He could have done that with Lazarus, but he doesn't. Uh, Jesus has some higher purposes in mind here, namely God's and his own glory, as we'll see in verse 4, and for the disciples and Mary and Martha's increased faith, as we'll see as we work through the chapter. And so he delays going, at least right away. Lazarus dies, the sisters grieve uh, the loss of their brother, but the point is because he loved them, he allowed them to suffer. We're going to look at why that is here. Uh, But to summarize the lesson for us, although we often can't know why we're suffering, we can, in every case, take our troubles to Jesus and know that he loves us and know that he's going to work for our good in his time, not in our time. I want to draw five lessons out of these first six verses here of John 11. The first one I've already alluded to, and that is that the Lord allows those he loves to suffer. Three times, either directly or indirectly, once indirectly, twice directly, John mentions how close Jesus was to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The indirect reference is in verse 2, where he points ahead and says, This was the Mary who anointed the Lord uh, with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. The interesting thing is John doesn't tell about that until chapter 12, and we're in chapter 11. Um, There may be several reasons for that. One, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, which report the same event, had been circulating now for decades when John wrote his Gospel And he may have assumed that all of his readers knew about that. Remember, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what Mary has done will be remembered of her. So it may have just been such common knowledge that John refers to it and then later tells about it himself. Or he may be trying to create some anticipation with readers saying, keep reading, you'll learn about this event. Uh, But whatever the the reason... um, It shows how close Mary was to the Lord. She anointed him before his death, and the Lord commended Mary for it. And then you have in verse 3, the messenger says to Jesus, 
um, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And then again in verse 5, John, you can tell he's trying to drive this point home. John says it again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then you have the surprising connection. So, verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, some of you have a nearly inspired version. That's the NIV. And uh, the nearly inspired version murders the Greek here. I don't know how they came up with this. Uh, that is not what the Greek text says. But they say, yet, that's not, it's not drawing a disjunction. It's drawing an inference. The Greek word, un, means therefore. He loved them, therefore he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So John is making this startling connection that <coughs> Jesus loved them, so he let them go through this horrible suffering resulting in Lazarus's death. Now, that delay didn't feel like love to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was love, but my point is it didn't feel like love. Uh, Lazarus lived in a day when there was no modern medicine, and I don't know what he was dying of, but probably it involved some pain and discomfort. And the sisters watched as Lazarus languished and got worse, and they're going, where's the Lord we sent for him? And they were in all this anxiety, and Lazarus died. But John's point is, The reason Lazarus died was not because Jesus didn't love him and didn't care about him, but because he did. But because he did. And this chapter, along with many, many other chapters and verses in the Bible, it refutes a very popular but destructive heresy that has flooded the church in our day, And it is the heresy that it is always God's will for all of his children to experience bodily healing and material prosperity. It's called the health and wealth uh, thing. And you've undoubtedly heard about it. These guys are on TV promoting it. It has flooded into poor third world countries in Africa, South America, Asia. And it holds out the promise to these poor, often physically suffering people who can't afford medical care and says, if you'll believe in Jesus, you'll have healing, you'll have wealth. And so they sign up for the program. And then when they don't have healing and they don't have wealth, these false teachers say, well, it's your lack of faith. I mean, there's nothing more cruel than to tell somebody who's suffering, you know, if you just had faith like I do, you'd be healed. Uh, and these, <clears throat> these false teachers flaunt it with their lavish lifestyle, which they gained at the expense of these already poor people who give. And uh, nobody ever seems to notice that the false teachers get sick and die just about the same rate as everybody else on this planet. You know, it's, it's a complete falsehood, a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible is clear. And I could take you, if we had time, to many, many references. Read Hebrews 11 there at the end. The godly often suffer even as they trust in God. 
It's just part of the Bible. Now, that raises the question, well, why? And that leads us to the second truth here. We cannot always know the why of our suffering. That's often the first question that pops in our mind, isn't it? Why? Why me? Why now? You know, why Why this? Did I do something wrong to deserve this? Is God punishing me? All those questions flood in when we encounter major suffering. <clears throat> Several years ago, I, I get a letter from John MacArthur, not personal, of course, but, uh, you know, a letter where he's trying to raise funds for the, his college and seminary. And uh, he, he told about a pastor and his wife from Utah who had visited the master's college because their oldest daughter was going to enroll there in the fall and family wanted to check it out, as many do here with NAU. And their second oldest daughter was planning to attend that college when she graduated in a year or two, so she was along on the trip. And then they brought along a couple of Italian foreign exchange students in the hopes that they could have an opportunity to share the Lord with them on the trip. And their son also was in the car. And they looked around the college, had a a pleasant day, and they were planning the next day on a Sunday to attend services at Grace Church where uh, MacArthur is the pastor. And as they drove out of the campus, a van traveling at full speed T-boned them, hit them broadside. The girls were catapulted out of the car and died instantly. Uh, The car caught fire. They managed to get the two exchange students and their son out, but they were badly wounded and went to the hospital. The couple themselves, the car hit just behind them, so they were shaken up, but uh, no serious uh, or life-threatening injuries. Well, MacArthur said he rushed to be with the couple at the hospital, and of course they were shocked and they were shattered by what had just happened, losing two girls just in a blow. But then the father amazed MacArthur, and he said, encouraged him when he said this. He said, my sweeping thought is this. Isn't God good that he took my two daughters who knew Christ and loved Christ and spared these two Italian boys who are not saved? Isn't God good? I'm not sure I would have thought that at that moment. But that's how that dad was processing this horrible trial that hit them. I would venture to say at that point, and even now, some, I think, 25 years later, they probably could not tell you why that accident happened. All they could do is say, we are trusting in a sovereign and good God, and we know we'll see our girls again in heaven. Somebody has said, well, rather than ask why, a better question to ask is what? In other words, what can I learn from this trial? Or maybe how? How can God use this trial? And we can't even always know those, the answers to those questions because we don't know the many ways of God. He works in mysterious ways as wonders to perform, as the uh, old hymn goes. But you can consider three avenues to try and maybe answer the questions what or how. First of all, Godward, the suffering may be to display God's glory. 
We see that in verse 4 here. Jesus says, This sickness is not to result or end in death, but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it. We saw a similar thing back in chapter 9, verse 3. Remember the man born blind? And the disciples asked, Who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned or his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Does that thought shock you? What Jesus is saying is, God would have this man be born blind, live blind most of his life, so that his works could be displayed in that man. Would it shock you to think about a man who lost ten children in one instant, and lost his possessions, he was fairly wealthy, And then his health, only to have his friends come and tell him he was sinning. That's the story of Job, isn't it? And if that sort of thing shocks you, and the reason, by the way, for that trial with Job was so that God would be vindicated before Satan. And if it shocks you, then I think we have too small a view of God. And the reason I say that is because that's what God told Job at the end of the book. Remember, he shows up and he says to Job, Job 38, 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? (laughs) You weren't around, Job. I'm the one who founded this world. And he goes on like that for chapter after chapter after chapter. He challenges Job in chapter 40, verse 2. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job's the fault finder. God is the Almighty. And Job's final reply, and I think this is the point of the whole book, chapter 42, verse 6, is, Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. And so here you have the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's God's evaluation of Job. And he has to learn that God's glory and God's purpose are greater than the horrible, horrible suffering that that man went through. And that's what God wants us to learn. John Piper, in a message on John 11 here, writes this. He says, love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? The answer of John 11.4 here is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God, seeing and admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of of God in Jesus Christ. That's what heaven's going to be, isn't it? Glorying in God. So first of all, God word, God may be working in your trial to bring glory to himself somehow. Then self word, the suffering may be either constructive or corrective. That is to say constructive helping you to grow. Or corrective, helping to get you back on track if you've fallen into some sin. 
I first preached through the Gospel of John about 37 years ago. And uh, the week I, before I came to John chapter 11, our little newborn, who was six months old at the time, we discovered had a congenital hip problem, and she had to spend a week in the hospital, cried the whole week. You know, as a father with a six-month-old, you can't talk to her. She didn't understand. They had her in traction, so she's on her back with her little legs up in a traction device. And then they put her in a body cast that went from her ankle up to her armpits, and she had to be in that for two months. And I'm sure that was not a comfy uh, way to sleep or live. And then after that, she had to be in a, in a harness that kept her feet out in a frog-leg position for a couple of years. Now, she's just a baby. She wasn't suffering because she had sinned. As far as I know, she wasn't suffering because we had sinned. It was constructive. She had a problem that needed to be fixed. And we, because we loved her, had to put her through some discomfort and pain for the longer-range goal that she would someday be able to walk. Her hip is not perfect now, but it's formed enough that the doctor's method worked, and uh, she is able to walk. But it was constructive, and I suppose you'd say corrective. Hebrews 12.10 says that God disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And then he adds in verse 11, all discipline for the moment does not seem joyful, but sorrowful, but afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Godward, it may be for his glory. Selfward, it may be constructive or sometimes corrective. And then otherward, The suffering may be to bring comfort to other Christians, or it may be a witness to non-Christians. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, Paul says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And so, sometimes, you know, you're with somebody who's suffering and you might say, well, I understand what you're going through. You shouldn't say that unless you've been through it. If you've been through it, then, yeah, you can say, you know what? I went through the exact same thing, so I can identify. But we can comfort others with the comfort we've received from God. And then, as a witness, and we see that in this chapter, Mary and Martha had many friends who had come to grieve with them and comfort them. They went to the tomb. They saw Jesus call Lazarus forth. And we read down in uh, verse 45 that many of them believed in Jesus as a result of seeing this miracle. And then we'll come in chapter 12 to see that many were flocking to Bethany to see Lazarus raised from the dead. And through that, many others were coming to faith. And so sometimes God can use your suffering and how you handle it to bring non-Christians to the Savior. don't know if you've ever read it. It's many, many years old now, over 40 years ago. Johnny Erickson, now Johnny Erickson Tata, wrote the autobiography of her suffering. Uh, If you're not familiar with the story, as a 17-year-old girl, she dove into some water, and the bottom was closer than she realized. She snapped her neck and was paralyzed instantly from the uh, neck down. And her 
autobiography tells the struggles, emotional and spiritual, that she went through until finally she came to trust in Christ fully as Savior and Lord and submit to him in this trial. And uh, she uh, ends the book by telling how she was speaking at a rally to many high school kids. And she was hopeful that scores of these kids would come to faith in Christ through her testimony. But then she adds this sentence. She says, But I will be pleased if only one person is drawn to Christ. Even one person would make the wheelchair worth all that the past eight years have cost. Now that was like I said, over 40 years ago, and Johnny Erickson Tata is still bearing witness to us and to many thousands around the world through her books and so on of how her suffering uh, has it's brought many, many to Christ and certainly helped many believers to be comforted. So the story then, first of all, teaches us the Lord does allow those he loves to suffer It teaches us we can't always know the why of our suffering. Sometimes we can figure out the what or the how that he can use the suffering for his glory. But thirdly, the story certainly shows us we can always take our troubles to Jesus. Uh, I don't know how the sisters knew where Jesus was. Maybe he had left word where he was going. Uh, But somehow they got the word to him in verse 3. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Let me point three things out about that message that they sent to Jesus. First of all, would you notice that they didn't demand that Jesus come and heal their brother? In fact, there's not even a request. They didn't ask him to do anything. They just pointed out the need. Lord, he whom you love is sick. And they left it at Jesus' feet to do as he saw best. Second, They didn't claim Lazarus' healing by faith and command Jesus by a word of faith to do it. See, that's the teaching of this health and wealth heresy that's going on. Uh, You're supposed to just speak the word of faith, command God, and it's done. That's what they claim. That is not only nonsense, it's presumption, and it is the height of arrogance. God is God. And you and I are not God. And we don't know God's ways. And we don't know God's eternal purpose. And, you know, some of these health and wealth people, I've read them, they'll say, uh, it's not faith if you say your will be done when you pray. Well, excuse me. I think I remember someone in the garden saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And uh, I think he was praying correctly in faith. You see, that phrase just shows, Lord, I'm subject to your will. You can take me or my loved one off the planet this instant, and there is no grounds I have for complaint because you are Lord, and I am not Lord. So, Lord, I come before you humbly, and I ask that your will be done. A third thing to note here is the sisters didn't say, Lord, he who loves you is sick. In other words, they weren't coming to Jesus saying, you owe him one. You know, he's, he's a good guy, Lord. He loves you. You got to do this for him because of him. No, they came and said, verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is sick. 
In other words, they're coming by grace. And they're not appealing on the basis of anything they have done, anything Lazarus has done. They're just saying, Lord, you're a God of love. And we know you love us. And we know you love our brother. Would you have mercy on us? As you may know, one of my heroes in prayer is George Mueller. If you haven't read his story, I just discovered there was only one copy of his biography out here right now. You're missing it as a Christian. You've got to read the story of George Mueller. He lived in the 1800s. He saw a bunch of poor kids running around on the streets of Bristol, England. And by faith, he founded an orphanage to care for them. And his design was not just to care for the kids, but he said, I want people to know that God is a prayer-hearing God, that he hears our prayers. And so he supported these children simply by faith and prayer. He would not send out prayer letters. He would not send out fundraisers. If someone asked, do you have a need? He would say, "Um, pray about it. I don't tell my needs. And for decades, God supplied the needs At one time, over 2,000 orphans at once, simply by faith and prayer. It's a great story to read. But Mueller had five conditions for prayer that I have long ago written on a card, and these have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. First, Mueller said, ask only for that which it would be for the glory of God to give us. That's what we've seen here, if it's for the glory of God. Second, ask in dependence. on the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, expect it only on the ground of his merits and worthiness. Again, we see that here. Third, separation from all known sin. God won't hear our prayers if we are knowingly living in sin. Fourth, believe that God is able and willing to give us what we ask him for. And then fifth, continue in prayer, expecting God to answer until the blessing comes. So, first of all, we've seen the Lord allows those he loves to suffer. Secondly, we can't always figure out the why, sometimes the what and the how. Thirdly, in any situation, in every situation, you can and should take your needs to the Lord in in prayer. And then fourthly, always interpret your suffering by God's love. Don't interpret God's love by your suffering. Let me say that one again, just so it sinks in. Never or always interpret your suffering by God's love, but never interpret uh, God's love by your suffering. Uh, I've already pointed out here the, the emphasis on Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Love always seeks the highest good of the one loved. If you want a simple definition of love, that's mine in a nutshell. Love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And as Pastor Piper pointed out in the quote I mentioned earlier, your highest good is not that you be healthy or wealthy. Your highest good is that you would get a vision of how glorious Jesus is and God is, that that would captivate you. And uh, in her book that I just referred to, Johnny Erickson made this amazing statement about her accident. And this is a teenager whose neck was snapped and who's paralyzed from the neck down. Okay, here's what she says. God engineered the circumstances. That's a powerful statement in itself. God engineered the circumstances. 
He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. You know what she's talking about. The privilege of having your neck broken. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his grace, exercising newly learned trust. I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, even joy. See what she's doing? She's interpreting her suffering in light of God's love, not interpreting God's love in light of her suffering. And so should we. And then finally, realize that love sometimes involves delays that we can't understand at the time. These sisters could not understand, where is Jesus? Why doesn't he come? We know that because when he finally got there, both sisters blurt out the exact same complaint. I'm sure they had rehearsed it with one another. Where is he? Where is he? I don't know. But this thing is acting up. Sorry about that. But in verse 21, um, Martha says it. And in verse 32, Mary repeats it. Same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they couldn't figure out why did Jesus delay? Now, as we've seen, we're told why Jesus delayed. He loved them. He loved them. So he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's why he delayed. See, by delaying, they would see more of God's glory. They would see more of Jesus' power. They would grow in their faith. And so the Lord's delay was deliberate. It was out of love, but they didn't see it at the time. They only could see it looking back and realize, oh, wow, that was for our good. And so Romans 8.28 is always true. Every situation, I know people say, oh, that's trite. Don't quote it to somebody suffering. Excuse me. I think it was written for people suffering. And I think it's written so we would lay hold of it in our suffering And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That is a great verse to lay hold of in suffering. You know, there's a lot in Scripture about waiting on the Lord. If the Lord answered instantly every time we asked, we wouldn't learn to trust him. We just pull the lever, get the goodies and go on our way and we'd forget about God. But we need to recognize our need to depend on him and that God never delays because he's indifferent to our need. He never delays because uh, he's too busy. He's away on vacation. I just read the story of Elijah this week in my quiet time, and he mocks the prophets of Baal because he says, oh, maybe your God's in going to the bathroom, you know, then he can't answer your prayer. Now, that's exactly what the Hebrew there means when he says maybe he's you know, relieving himself. Uh, No. Peter tells us, cast all our anxiety on the Lord. And then he adds these precious words, 1 Peter 5, 7. 
Because he cares for you. Isn't that wonderful? He cares for you in all of your trials and anxiety. And Peter was writing to a suffering church. One of the things we learn here because Jesus delayed is that the resurrection of Lazarus is a prototype of our resurrection. Maybe you've wondered sometimes, you know, how's that going to work? How's the Lord going to raise decomposed bodies someday? He will. He did it with Lazarus. It's a prototype of what he will do when Paul says, the last trump will sound, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, Uh, we will be raised and we will get new resurrection bodies. They won't be subject to death and suffering and sorrow and sickness and all of that. This is a type of it. And through this miracle, we learn, as we'll come to in verse 25, that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him will never die. He means eternally. We will have eternal life through faith in Jesus. I read about a woman who was still grieving the loss of her mother that week when she came to church on Sunday, first Sunday after her mother died. And just as she came up to the door of the church, a little seven-year-old boy greeted her with tears in his eyes. He said to her, I prayed for your mother, but she died. And the woman was going to take him in her arms and hug him and cry with him. And then she realized he's hurting. Uh, He's struggling with why God didn't seem to answer his prayer. So she shot up one of those quick, Lord, help me, prayers. And then she said to the little boy, uh, she said, "You, you wanted God to do his best for my mother, didn't you? And he nodded slowly. And then she said, well, God answered your prayer. His best for my mother was to take her home to be with him at this time. And uh, the little boy's eyes brightened up and he said, that's right, he did answer my prayer, didn't he? And he ran off to be with his friends. But we can't always know the why. We can sometimes know the what or the how, what God is doing or how he's going to use it. We can't always take our troubles to Jesus because he cares for us. And we can know that he loves us and that he's going to work together for good, not in our time, but in his time. So we can trust him in all our trials. Dear Father, I know if we went around this room, there are hurts in every heart. There are trials in every home. And Father, often we complain and uh, we feel like you don't love us. Maybe we doubt. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in our trials, to know that you are good, that you are loving, that you are sovereign, and that not a hair from our heads can perish without your permission. I pray, Father, that if any are here without Jesus, they would recognize that uh, should they die, they will not be promised heaven, but judgment, but that you offer them eternal life as a free gift this very instant if they will trust in you. And so I pray, Father, you would work that in their hearts now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.